This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, this is Trisha. Just a quick reminder before we get to our guest today that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is on Saturday, October 26th at Georgetown University, and we really hope all of you plan to join us. You'll come and be inspired by luminaries in health and wellness and take home real strategies to improve your happiness and wellness. You can get all the information you need at AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com. And now for the show. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Tammy Simon is the founder and CEO of Sounds True, a multimedia publishing company with a mission to wake up the world. For over 30 years, Tammy has been disseminating the wisdom and guidance of today's leading spiritual teachers. Tammy is also the host of the popular weekly podcast, Insights at the Edge, and the author of the audiobook, Being True, What Matters Most in Work, Life, and Love. Welcome, Tammy. We are so thrilled you're here. We have been huge fans of yours through the years. In fact, Trisha was in one of your classes. Yes, at Kerpalo. I know we spoke about it before, but it was a thrill to have you be our teacher there. We sort of grew up with Sounds True over the last 25 years, listening and being so inspired. And so we want to begin by talking to you about your spiritual journey. And we were so fascinated that your spiritual journey started out moved by people not having a connection to, as you put it, the underlying web of wholeness that we're all part of. You were young when you had that insight and you started Sounds True when you were very young. And so can you tell us about this insight? You know, I think it really started as a teenager when I started reading books by Herman Hesse, books like Siddhartha and The Wisdom of Insecurity by Alan Watts. And I remember being first introduced to a figure sitting by a river in the book Siddhartha, listening to the sound of the river and understanding that everything was impermanent that there was this moving sound that you could never step in the same river twice. And that was reflected in the tinkling sound of moving water, that there was no place where you could pin it down and say that sound isn't changing. And then later when I was a student in the philosophy department in Swarthmore College, and I was introduced to the Buddhist philosophy and the idea that there are three marks to existence. And I'll just be very brief, but the first is impermanence. And then the second is that because everything is changing, there's also not a solid self that doesn't change. We're always changing too. And then finally, that our suffering comes from clinging and not understanding that everything's in flux and changing. So with this idea that everything is impermanent, the web of existence came into apparent knowing for me that everything's interconnected in this changing fluid field because we can't nail anything down. There's nothing solid. It's just this interconnected web. What happens in one place affects what happens far, far away. And so I think this feeling and knowing of interconnection was a really big 
aha for me. And I started feeling as if I was a big web being itself connected to everyone and everything in all time and all places. Wow. And you started sort of formulating those thoughts when you were a teenager? Yeah, you know, I was a weird kind of alienated, <laughs> lonely kid. And I remember putting these books under my pillow at night and sleeping with them and feeling that for the first time there was writing and a teacher and a voice that reflected something I knew on the inside. It was so important to me. It was like a lifeline, if you will, to have that kind of validation. Because when I looked around, the world just seemed so insane, to be quite honest. And I knew there was something that was sane and good and that made sense and that was wholesome and whole, but I needed it reflected. And that's what I found in these writings. You know, and again, having you as our teacher, I remember my sister and I, who was with me taking the class, saying, boy, she's so authentic. She's just so real. Can you talk about that and what that means to you and how you're able to just be that way? I guess it has a plus side and a negative side. The negative side might be when I was a kid, my mom used to say, Whenever anybody comes into the room, everyone knows exactly how you feel about them. And it would be better if you didn't smirk like that when (laughs) Uncle So-and-so came into the room. And so, you know, I think it's just weird. It's always been part of my nature as a person to not hide and to just be who I am. And quite honestly, I don't think I could hide it. Like, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, even as a kid it felt like I would have been turning myself into a pretzel or putting on lots of various clothes on top of who I actually am. So I think that's just been a natural way of being for me and the Mm. only way that I feel at home in myself. And I think later I've come to see as an adult that I actually believe that the truth of who we are is our gift to the moment. Because the truth of who we are, what we sense inside, what we know inside in an unfiltered way is the intelligence of the universe coming through us. And I found in my life that when people speak the truth to me, I experience it as a gift. And that I also have wanted to give that gift to other people. And you know, it sounds true. I work with 120 employees with our staff here. And the thing that people will always say is, you know, we can count on you, Tammy, that you'll be truthful. And that I think is helpful for people in an organization. It's certainly helpful in any relationship. I had a mother like that, who we always knew where we stood with her because she always spoke the truth. And sometimes it hurt, though, but it was appreciated. I've heard that, too. One of our values, it sounds true, is being kind and direct. And at first, the way we framed it was being direct and kind. And then the feedback I got from the leadership team is, because we're dealing with Tammy, I think we should put the kind word first. (laughs) I think that's good. Can we talk a little bit about living in connection with other people? When we think about what it means to live a spiritual life, we imagine meditating alone on a mountaintop and far and away from people. But connecting with people is literally what you do. So do you feel this communal interconnected aspect of living a spiritual life has been underappreciated? Well, first of all, I think it's important to recognize we're always connected. 
So whether we're aware of it or not is dependent on our visions. But do we see, do we see that we're connected to the air that we're breathing and therefore the trees and the environment to the sky? Are we connected to obviously every other person that we come into contact with, with our biological families that brought us here and our ancestors. So in that interconnected vision that I shared with you from a young age where everything's changing and fluid and moving, it's clear we're connected. So the question is, do we recognize it or do we experience ourselves as separate beings? And if we're experiencing ourselves as separate, where have we cut off you know, Alan Watts used to talk about the skin encapsulated ego, that we have this idea that we're the separate individual inside our skin. But that's a fantasy. We made that up. I mean, actually, our skin is incredibly porous and we're connected feeling wise. I mean, you can tell when you walk into a room, you can feel the other people who were in the room hours before you, you know, you can feel like, oh, this room feels so good. Or, oh, this room feels like there was a fight in here before I even got here. Mm -hmm. So we're so sensitive and we're always connected. I think a lot of the ways to answer your question that people practice mindfulness meditation is with their eyes shut all by themselves, perhaps, in a room. And that leads to this idea that we're on some type of solitary journey as a spiritual explorer. And I think when this really became apparent to me, it was when I first began in the relationship that I've been in for the last 18 years with my partner, Julie. And early on, when she came to Boulder to live with me, at that time, I was doing long, solitary retreats. So I would go and retreat for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. And I used to go to intensive practice retreats over the holidays. And I would be gone both for her birthday and Christmas. And at one point, after doing this for a couple of years, she looked at me and she said, you know, I know you're on this very important quest to discover the essence of unconditional love. But meanwhile, you're leaving me alone <laughs> and on Christmas. And there's something really weird about this that doesn't feel right. There's something wrong. You know, and, it, and my eyes just opened at that moment. And I thought, I'm somehow missing the point. I say that what I want is love without boundary. And the person closest to me feels ignored and neglected. I have to change this. And so I started making some different decisions in my life. And she said, you know, it's fine to go on a solitary retreat, but why don't you do it not over the holidays when my birthday happens, when I go to visit <laughs> Do it in the springtime. Do it in the summer. Right. And I thought to myself, I can do that. You know, I have to honor the connectedness in my life. I have to pay attention to it. I have to open my eyes and take in these inputs and really put my relationships with other people first and foremost. Mm. So would you say that one of the most powerful ways to practice mindfulness is in our relationships with other people? Yes, and that if we're not bringing and embodying our mindfulness and our care and our inner sensitivity to every single one of our relationships, I think we're missing the whole point. Then what is the point? If it's not generating greater love, greater understanding, greater appreciation, if it's not lifting everybody up that we come into contact with, I'd say we missed 
the mindfulness boat, period. So, you know, I've been running Sounds True now for 34 years and have worked with so many different authors. And many of the presenters we work with are beautiful teachers. They really come from a place of presence and they bring that into all of their interactions with the Sounds True staff. But then there's also been a percentage of the teachers that we've worked with. And what I noticed was that even though these individuals could write very inspiring and compelling books. And when they were on stage, they could give incredible presentations and really help people learn lessons that were life-changing. When either I or the staff here would interact with them, maybe it would be around business negotiations or about deadlines or changes. When there was stress in the system and it was interpersonal, you know, they acted well, just in plain language, kind of like jerks at times. Mm-hmm. And I swore to myself as somebody who is committed to the spiritual journey and the practice of mindfulness, that the most important thing was embodying it in all of my interactions. Mm-hmm. And that that was a non-negotiable, because that's really where our beliefs are put to the test. It's how we treat each other. That's the kind of lasting wake, if you will, the wake behind us in our life, in addition to whatever artifacts we create in terms of books and teaching materials. It's that daily interaction of how we've impacted people that matters the most. So when you ask, is this kind of interpersonal mindfulness important? And has it not been attended to enough? I'd say 100% it's important. And I hope we can attend to it more and more. It's the true litmus test, in my view. So how would you describe specifically a mindful relationship? And how can people be fully present for one another? I think the first part is really deciding that that's your value, that you really value that, and that it's a primary value in your life. I recently spent some time with Sister Joan Chittister, and now we're operating in a completely different spiritual paradigm, not so much in the world of mindfulness, but here she is, a Benedictine nun. And one of the things she shared with me is how could you view every situation through the eyes of love, through the eyes of a loving God, the way God would look at everybody in every situation. And I'm bringing that forward because if we want to have a mindful relationship, I think it begins by actually seeing that inner light and that innocence and that beauty and that preciousness in every single person we interact with and saying that really matters. That view really matters to me. And then I think when we have that firmly in place as a value, it's actually not that hard. Like we know how to do this as human beings. It means that we value other people's feelings Mm -hmm. and opinions. Everybody wants to be seen and heard. So we make room 
to see and hear people. It means that our agenda, and often our agenda is forwarding our own creative project or some money-making thing or the stuff that's on our list to get done or whatever we're trying to do to prove ourselves, that that's not as important as what's actually happening right here between me and the other person. And it's having a kind of deep humility that says they matter as much as I matter. This person's view and opinion matters as much as my own. I'm not so self-cherishing and so self-involved that I don't see that this other person has equal merit right here in this moment. So that requires deeply and actively listening, right? Listening is huge. It's a really, really, really huge part. As I said, everybody wants to be heard and seen. And if we don't listen to people, we don't know what their needs are. We don't know where they're coming from. Now, I think one of the great things about the practice of mindfulness is that through the practice, we can actually learn to put our agendas aside and listen deeply. And we can learn to listen not just with our mind, but with our whole body, and most importantly, with our heart. We can even learn to hear not the words the person's saying, but what they're really saying. When you're distracted and you're struggling to listen, what do you do in those moments? Well, I think one thing, first of all, is just recognizing. I'm distracted. Mm -hmm. Why am I distracted? Am I distracted because I have something I need to do? Is it really the most important thing I need to do right now? What is the most important thing I need to do right now? Is it the person in front of me? And you know, what's interesting, I've seen some people who are very gracious and very present and also very famous. And there can be a long line of people. And you could think that with that long line of people coming up to say hi and ask a question and I have a need, that they could be like, I got to move these people through. But people who really are deeply established in mindfulness and presence can give 100% of their full attention to someone, even for just a few seconds of thank you very much. I see you. Good luck with that. That must be hard. Mm. I give you my blessing right now. It's great to see your shining eyes. And even just in a few seconds, that person feels met. So it's possible. So if we're distracted, we're not actually 100% there. And the other person never gets the hunger inside of them met. And they don't get the nourishment that comes if we could be 100% there. It only actually takes a few seconds. And then mm. we can go on with whatever it is we need to go on with. When you talked about listening with your heart and listening with your body, can you expand on that? I host a podcast mm -hmm. series where I interview people for about an hour. And one of the things I've really come to see is how to suspend any kind of conclusion about what the person's saying. Like, what does it mean to actually listen from a place of not having a position? Because, you know, often we listen and we already have a position. 
Right, mm-hmm. right. We already know what we think, right? We've mm-hmm. already thought it through. But what would it be like to actually suspend that? Just put it to the side and say, I'm going to completely open my mind. And then, as I mentioned, it's not just opening our mind, but as we open the pores on our skin, you start to hear what's the feeling tone underneath what this person's saying? What are they really driving at? What really matters to them? And then furthermore, can I take their perspective? Like it's such an important skill and talk about what a mindful relationship might look like. I think the ability to say, this is someone who's different from me. They have a different perspective. I'm going to step into their shoes and take their perspective. That's such an important Mm. level of human development for us to be able to do that. I think that's the way we solve problems. I think that's the way we can negotiate across differences. And it creates an incredible amount of understanding. I think that's one of the biggest keys, taking the other person's perspective. Mm -hmm. And putting our stories aside. Yeah. Not living from that story. And we know our own story. I mean, we know it. We've rehearsed it. We've said it over and over in our head. And at a certain point, it's not that interesting. It's just about us. (laughs) It's like so boring. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we're (laughs) pushing that on the other person because we're seeking validation or there's something in us that can't just rest a bit Mm. and say, I want to learn. I want to know something I don't know. Being vulnerable and humble when you're in connection with people can be hard. How do you navigate that? I think one of the things in terms of being vulnerable, it actually tracks back to your question about finding yourself distracted, which is it's okay to say to somebody, I'm feeling a little distracted right now, or I'm actually in a hurry, or I only have a few minutes for this, meaning we can actually come forward with how we feel. Or for example, I was with some friends the other night and they started sharing something about their lives. And I noticed I felt really uncomfortable. As they were talking, I started getting more and more uncomfortable. And then I started getting judgmental. And before you know it, I was creating a whole case against them. And I thought I could make my case or I could go back to that original feeling in which I just started feeling a little uncomfortable. And I could share that with them and be vulnerable. Because just go back and say, you know, I don't have all the answers here, but let me tell you how I'm actually feeling. And that's part of being the truth teller as well, which is being able to share with people whatever's going on for you. You know, it's not always all buttoned up and neat and nice and clean. Sometimes it's a little awkward. Like, you know, you said this thing and I noticed that I felt my stomach turn over a little bit and I'm not quite sure why. And I just want to share that with you. I think part of being vulnerable is letting ourselves be, I mean, a mess is a little strong, but we're not always all together. Everything's not always all zipped up. We often have lots of questions inside and we can share that with people and it allows for a much deeper connection. So that's the vulnerability part. And then I think in terms of the humility, I think just letting ourselves not always have all the answers. 
you know, have you ever been with somebody who seems to always have an answer for yes. everything? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it actually shuts the space in the room down. It shuts you down. It shuts everybody down. And, you know, okay, great. They're the smart know-it-all. And maybe you look up to them or whatever in certain ways. But it's not all that interesting at a certain point. It's a lot more interesting to be on a path of discovery with other people. When you were talking about vulnerability and going back and saying, you know, I felt this moment when I was uncomfortable, I felt in my stomach fear. I thought, I don't know, you know, I don't want people not to like me. So there was a lot of fear when you started talking about vulnerability. To be vulnerable is actually a supremely courageous act. It's really courageous. That sounds true in our leadership team. We have a courageous feedback award Mm. for the person who was willing to say something that perhaps isn't popular, but they took the courage. You know, there's 14 people in the room and that person had the courage to say, you know, I'm not quite with this or I disagree with you. I'm not clear about this or I need help Mm -hmm. in a certain kind of area. I know recently for me, one of the most vulnerable things was just to be with people and to be able to not be all shiny and bright and have it all together, but to share some of my sadness about a loss in my family, a death in my family. And it was during a time where normally I would sequester myself. I would go off, I'd be alone, I would just cocoon. I would be like, you know, I'm not fit to really be with other people right now because I feel so sad, I'm grieving. And yet these are people who love me and they wanted to be with me and they wanted to comfort me. And I shared this part of me. And I think it is a lot more courageous for me to have done that. It took a lot more out of me than times when I've stood up on a stage in front of thousands of people and given a presentation. It's a different kind of courage that it takes to get on a stage and speak up. But the kind of courage it takes to let people in and let them see our soft underbelly, our vulnerable parts, that's a real serious kind of courage. It reminds me after my mom died, I was in National Airport and I was walking out of the airport and someone I knew was walking in and the person knew my mom. I saw them and broke down and in the middle of the airport, we're having this major hug in the middle of the airport. I told my kids about it and they were humiliated. But it does take courage to share how you feel. And it was a connection with this person Mm -hmm. who was feeling maybe somewhat the same way. And so I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it's a moment of real love and care and mercy. And talk about connection. Those are those moments of real connection we have with each other. And it's a gift to get to share that with each other, a gift of love. Mm -hmm. Another key component that we talk about is being in real connection with other people with the commitment to the truth. And we've sort of touched on that, like telling ourselves our own stories and living from that. And not only hearing the truth when it's difficult for us, but also speaking the truth when it's difficult for us. There's a movement right now and a call right now in the workplace environment where people don't want to wear a mask at work. They don't want to do it. They don't want to go home and be one person and then come into an office and be somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's something healthy behind that instinct, which is that I think that as people, we actually want to feel our wholeness. When we feel it 
and we feel that we can be genuine. We can be the most relaxed, the most creative. We can have the best ideas and we can enjoy life to the fullest. Now, can we always do this with every single person in every circumstance? No. I mean, there are plenty of people that it's not safe around. You know, it's not really safe around that person to bring my whole self forward. And I'm not going to. You know, I mean, shields up, as they say, (laughs) and that's smart. But what I notice is I strive to be the kind of person that has enough warmth and non-judgment acceptance and space in me that people feel like they can be themselves around me. Mm. Like I want to invite that. And I think this is a really, really important point that I'm about to make, which is we can only receive someone else's deep, authentic feelings about something in any kind of situation if we've already accepted that part of ourselves. So for example, if we're uncomfortable with anger, then people aren't going to feel okay expressing the fact that they're angry about something around us. Mm -hmm. If we can't handle sadness or grief, they'll feel it. They'll come up to us and they'll be like, I don't think I'm going to share my grief with that person because they can feel that we're shut down. If we're shut down to mystical phenomenon and hearing voices, and if we're not going to be the kind of person that people share their interesting dreams and visions with, they won't share them with us. They'll find someone else to share them with. If we haven't dealt with our own capacity to struggle, people won't share their struggles with us. Mm -hmm. So that's where our own inner work and the ability, you know, you've seen it all inside yourself. You've accepted it all inside yourself. You know it and you know it's okay. You know that you can handle it and you have handled it inside yourself. You become a welcoming force for other people to bring their authenticity to you. Your self-acceptance series talked all about that, right? To learn how to accept all that about you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the most important skills that we find a way that even in our darkest moments, in our most difficult moments, we have a way of turning towards ourselves and being with ourselves and offering ourselves unconditional acceptance. It's okay. You know, people talked to Kristen Neff, who's a self-compassion researcher, talked about how developing this skill can be as simple as putting your hand on your heart or gently stroking your own arm or your hand, one hand with the other, and just saying to yourself, darling, it's okay. You're going through something right now, but I'm here for you. So we learn how to be there for ourselves, and then we're able to be there for anyone in whatever way they present. Tammy, to make ourselves fully available to another person requires not expecting anything in return from them. There's a selflessness we need to bring to our relationships for them to flourish. What are your thoughts about that? And can we be too selfless? I think there's an interesting balance between selflessness and positive selfing to make relationships work. So I can selflessly take your perspective 
and that's important. And I can listen. You know, the image in shamanic teachings is like a hollow reed. I'm that empty inside that I can really take it all in. Mm. But then the other side of it is selfing. And that's also important. So part of the reason you're going to trust me in relationship is I can say, okay, I heard everything you said. Let me see if I got it right. What's going on for you is this, this, this is what you're feeling. This is what you need. But let me share with you where I'm coming from. Where I'm coming from is I have this set of needs. You know, I need to go to bed three hours earlier than you're proposing because I know how much sleep I need tonight because I know what's on my particular self person's schedule tomorrow. And it's different than yours. So I think that's what's interesting is that there's this holding of both truths simultaneously, selflessness, where I can really experience what's going on for you, and also a truthful recounting of my experience. And then we put them both out there and we find our way together. Given the divisiveness that we're seeing in our present culture and the ability to deeply connect with each other with kindness and compassion seems more important than ever. One of the things is I think we have to be able to self-regulate in such a way that we manage our own reactivity. So we know, oh, I'm being reactive right now. I can feel it. You can feel it in your body. You're not calm any longer. You're not listening. You're off to the races, so they say. So we have to each learn to see, oh, I'm reactive right now. I think this would be a good time for me to do some belly breathing, <laughs> take some deep breaths for a while. <laughs> Not just one, but maybe four, five, <laughs> six. Maybe go for a walk outside for 20 minutes. And you know, you can start to see in your nervous system when you're dysregulated and learn some very simple techniques for re-regulating ourselves. So we have to all do that. And then when we're calm, see if we can understand this position that's so different from mine. What are the underlying needs? What's really going on with this position that seems opposite? There are some human needs happening there. Do I understand them? Do I know what they are? And can we find a way together where I can voice my needs and I can understand the needs that seem opposing so that we can engage in that evolutionary human act of negotiating and finding a way through that best meets both of our needs. But when you can't come together, how do we practice compassion and connection when we vehemently disagree with people? Well, the vehement word is a strong word. Mm -hmm. So I think it's okay to agree to disagree and to do so in an agreeable way, to be able to be calm and composed. And there are different viewpoints that we're not always going to be able to come together and say that we have 100% alignment here. But we can recognize our shared humanity and the shared underlying needs and move to a place of the greatest good over the long term and commit ourselves to that without ever trespassing 
the love we have for every other human being. Like we never have to go against that. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. You're such a teacher. Just even in this short time that we've been with you, we have learned so much. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what book you would suggest we all should read or any book that is one of your favorites? You know, this is the book I've bought the most copies of and given to the most people. It's called The Unfolding Now by A.H. Almas. And I'll tell you what I like about it. What I like about it is that it's really a contemplative reader where you work with the book. So at the end of each chapter, there's a set of self-inquiry practices that you do such that you're dropping that separate ego self and in different ways becoming the unfolding now in your own experience. So what I love about this book is that it is a workbook where you read a bit, then you do an inquiry practice, discover all kinds of things, write down what you discover, and it's been incredibly helpful and instructive for me, the unfolding now. Hmm. Wow, that sounds awesome. Do you have a favorite quote you can share with us? It's not actually a quote. It's the title of an online course that Sounds True developed with Michael Singer, who's the author of the book, The Untethered Soul. And he called his course, Living from a Place of Surrender. What's interesting to me is sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night, 3, 4 a.m. This is like over the last six, nine months. I'll wake up and something will pop into my mind that I'm like, huh, what about that? What about that? You know, like some problem, something, you know, it could be big, could be small, could be anything. And this quote pops into my head, living from a place of surrender. And as soon as I hear it, I just exhale and I start breathing and relaxing in bed and starting to feel like I'm kind of floating on the ocean. And I think, oh, I'm going to live from a place of surrender. And I find myself back asleep and kind of in a peaceful stream. So that quote has been very helpful for me. Right now in this moment, can I live from a place of surrender? That's so powerful. I'm doing that tonight. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Tammy, what didn't we ask you that you want to share? Is there anything we didn't touch on that you would love to just share with everybody? Well, I think you touched on this point, and I'm just going to circle back around and underscore it. We've heard a lot about mindfulness, and the next step is something that we could call co-mindfulness. So it's how we're going to actually bring our best quality of awareness and inner sensitivity to each other. We're going to practice co-mindfulness together. And I think when we really start doing that, we're going to see our organizations change. We're going to see social structures change. We're going to see deliberations between nations change when we can all start actually saying we really value co-mindfulness. So I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think that's our collective frontier. Tammy, thank you for being such a leader and a teacher in this world. And we are grateful to you for coming on Health Geek. And thank you so much. Thank you both so much for your great work. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>